Welcome to Roll Call with We The Project. This is your host, Jordan Petros. We are here to connect, create, and discover today's people and projects in entertainment. You know, all too often, uh, those moments of time are, you know, documenting uh, wars and, and disasters and things like that. I, I do hope in my photos that we're seeing, you know, humanity, you know, living out their daily lives as best as they can. Mark Edward Harris started his professional photography career doing stills for the Merv Griffin show. When the show ended, he went on a four-month trek across the Pacific and throughout Southeast Asia, China, and Japan. These same images he created on that trip brought attention to his travel and documentary photography. He since has visited and photographed in 100 countries. He's won Photography Books of the Year, Best of Show Awards. His third book, Mark Edward Harris Wanderlust, led Mark to be named Photographer of the Year at the 2004 Black and White Spider Awards, and the book itself being named the People Photography Book of the Year at the 2005 International Photography Awards. North Korea was named Photography Book of the Year at the International Photography Awards. Mark is a contributing editor for publications in the film and photography field. Let's hear about what he's up to now. This is Roll Call with Mark Edward Harris. Mark Edward Harris, how are you? Great, Jordan. I mean, all things considered, it's uh, an unusual time to say the least. It absolutely is. And so if we could start out by getting us caught up on how you're pivoting some of your plans this year and some of the activities that you had with so much travel, you know, how you're taking the, the current social distancing state and, and being productive. Yeah, this is definitely unusual for me. I spend about half the year on the road and put in about up to 200,000 miles on travel assignments. And so this is definitely a change. I don't remember the last time I was in LA for so long. Uh, but, but basically, I'm using the time to uh, catch up with putting photos into stock photography, uh, generating stories with existing images that have been on my to-do list. I'm also trying to, you know, part of my routine when I'm in LA is working out. And so since the gym is is, is now closed, I fortunately, um, I mean, we have Amazon and I got a couple of uh, CDs on Tai Chi and, and Qigong, which has been fantastic. So I really have always gone by, uh, you know, one door closes, another opens. And so there's opportunities, you know, in, in, in everything. And so it's definitely taken an adjustment. I've also started a personal project in LA to show off and to document this social distancing. And so that's a work in progress where I'm getting it out every day to, to shoot and also being mindful of, of the rules of engagement. In other words, not interacting with anybody close. I mean, we all have to do our part to get through this, you know, very crazy time. Yes. And so you're, you're taking sort of current events and documenting, it sounds like, how has that changed? I mean, we're not, we can't go outside. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, I, I have a LAD, LAPD, you know, press pass, and so I'm allowed to go out as 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 news media, and so you know, I'm documenting things that I mean, LA is has always been known as a, as a place where where people are in their cars and not out on the streets, but I mean, it, it, this mm -hmm. situation has obviously exacerbated that. Obviously, we see far fewer cars, but even less people than normal on the streets. And so I have some specific areas that I'm keeping a bit uh, under wraps for now until it's completely flushed out. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, often we really don't know how things will look until they're, they're wrapped up. But the key is to get content and then look back at it. In other words, you can't get perspective on something from within. Uh, so often that perspective mm -hmm. is gained by time, you know, looking back at something. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at the images from, you know, just over 100 years ago when they had the Spanish flu, the epidemic, or you look at any mm -hmm. world events or, or local events that were documented, you, you can see it. I mean, look at the 60s. I'm sure when people were in the 60s, of course, there were people out there documenting it. But but we get a, a truer perspective, you know, from the distance created by time. And so I think this particular period in history will obviously be something to look back at. And I've done that a lot with my you know, projects over the years, you know, looking backward and looking forward at the same time. I, I did a feature, for instance, on D-Day. We were coming up to the 70th anniversary of uh, the D-Day landings. You know, de definitely in the print days, and so much of what, what I do has been, you know, print oriented, you have to 
think in advance because magazines have you know three month lead times and you have to pitch stories even before then. I mean, now with yeah. digital, you don't need those those lead times as much. But still, you know, I've always sort of pitched things. It's like, okay, this anniversary is coming up. You know, I've done you know, 10 trips to North Korea, nine to South Korea to do something on those countries and the conflict on the Korean peninsula. And then I timed two of my latest books on the situation there for the 60th anniversary of the signing of the armistice. And so I'm always looking Mm -hmm. at anniversaries as possible hooks for for Mm. subjects that I'm interested in. And so this is sort of, this is different in a way because we are all, you know, in this together and it's playing out in real time. We don't know how things will will end, but it's definitely something to look at, document at when we get a perspective, you know, years from now, people that have documented it will have something that's important for the, you know, the human historical record. And so uh, I often don't know exactly what my motivations are to do something uh, other than it just feels right to do this at, at, at this time. Mm-hmm. And if you've been to North Korea 10 times, Iran, Iraq, you got yeah. back from Australia. Uh, yeah. What do people tell you when you're about to embark on something that, that could be dangerous? Depends who it is. If it's my mother, it's don't go or don't tell me about it. <laughs> if it's, it was my ex-wife, it would be, did you pay the rent already? Uh, so it just, uh, it just depends uh, who it is. You know, people by now, I've, I've been to over 100 countries and, and a few, you know, dangerous areas along the way, and, you know, covered things like the aftermath of the earthquake in Nepal and the tsunami in Japan. And so, yeah, I mean, these are sort of the stories of our time. And I, I feel, but I don't go chasing around. I mean, there's a whole category called conflict photographers. I'm not really jumping from one conflict to another. I, I really like to do long-term studies of, of places and situations. So the tsunami, for instance, in Japan, it happened in March, 2011. Uh, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary. And so I've been back many times. I was there just before, ironically, and then just afterwards. And I've been back several times. Uh, Vanity Fair ran one of the features and some other publications. Getty has some of the images and has used those. But I really like to do these long-term studies to see how things evolve and how people adapt. And I, I think the way people adapted and dealt with uh, what happened in Fukushima and all along the Tohoku coast uh, is something that could be applied to what's going on now. I mean, obviously, Fukushima with the radiation, just like Chernobyl, you know, is something that you can't see, but definitely has a huge impact, potential impact on all of us, and especially the people living closer. And so to see how people dealt with that could be applied to a degree to this. I mean, the Japanese are particularly good, I think, as, as a as a group in terms of dealing with natural catastrophes. Uh, 10% of all earthquakes and volcanoes takes place in Japan, and so they've had more than their share of opportunities to deal with these you know, catastrophes. Your latest book, Way of the Japanese Bath, documents a lot of those those moments. Tell us yeah. a little bit how you sort of found that as a motif or found that to, to pursue and, and to document. So... The way the Japanese bath is definitely a product of all that volcanic and geological rumblings uh, under Japan because of all the hot springs it produces. And so that's the very positive side of the Hmm. geologic activity. Uh, The downside of of being under Ring of Fire are the tsunamis and earthquakes. And so I felt uh, after doing, now we're in our third edition of the way the Japanese bath, but back in 2011, I think we had the first two editions, but that was strictly about the onsen, uh, which is hot spring, the onsen culture, which is very fascinating how it's done there. Obviously, taking the waters is, is something that's existed in an organized form since you know the Roman baths, uh, such as that. But but the Japanese do it in a very unique way, and it's stunning visually and viscerally. Mm-hmm. And and so I chose. I started shooting that back in the early 90s and continue on to this day and have made the transition, you know, from film to uh, digital during the course of that. And Mm -hmm. I think it's been a pretty smooth transition in terms of of the look of the images. And part of that might be because it's it's black and white. And so you have sort of a certain, you know, tone to it. And so uh, the only difference is now, you know, converting the RGB, you know, the, the color files to to black and white and maybe adding a bit of grain Mm. to keep things looking roughly the same. But it's still the same eye shooting those photos. And so that's been the positive 
side of you know what's gone on in Japan because of, of all that geothermal activity. But the the downside, you know, was in particular what I got to witness firsthand was the tsunami. Uh, the earthquake did some damage, but the tsunami came in and just obliterated so many towns along the Tohoku coast. And so I enlisted the help of a friend that I had worked with before in Japan, based in Tokyo, and we drove all the way down the coast. And it was just, because we drove up inland first to get to a high area, a place called Taro, and then we started making our way down. And the devastation was beyond belief, just mile after mile. I mean, the power of water to just bend metal and, and the distance it went in up to six miles in the Sendai area. You, you know, you, you, can, you can photograph something uh, and you can try to convey it as best you can through photos. And I think I did a fairly good job with that. But when you're actually in person, and you witness it, it, it's just beyond belief. And so I'm going to go back again to continue the, the project. So I'll have a, a larger body of work for the 10-year anniversary. And so that might be it. So I think 10 years of, of documenting that is a good amount of time mm-hmm. to uh, tell a whole story. And so obviously stories have been coming out in publications along the way. But this is, you know, 10 years might be time to say, okay, I think this is, has told the story of the the tsunami and the recovery. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something about sort of your philosophy around you wanted to document and make sure that this lives in the future and, mm-hmm. and that there's, there's preservation around that. And I thought that was interesting. I was looking at the cover of one of your books, uh, actually Mark Edward Harris, uh, Wanderlust. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I'm by no means a, a critic or anything, but the way that I, when I look at your photography, it, it's rich and it seems like it's both on the edge of having the movement from the past, but like perpetuating to the future. Almost every photo seems like there's a deviation of movement on either side of it. So I don't know if you've heard that before. What are some other ways people have described your work? I appreciate those, those, those words. Uh, I mean, what, what motivates me uh, and I, I discovered uh, the magic of photography in a dark room in college and to see a frozen moment come up uh, in the developer and see this moment in time frozen forever uh, is just magical. And that feeling, even though now, you know, I haven't put my hands in developer in, in many years, you know, that feeling has never left me, the magic of that. And so freezing a moment in time. And so some people, you know, like fashion photographers like Ellen Von Unworth like movement. She doesn't like, you know, the, the frozen mm-hmm. image. She'll shoot it a little bit like, you know, 30th of a second or something to get a little movement in it, mm-hmm. in her images. I love the concept of freezing a moment you can't see. And so the photo on the cover mm. of Wonderlust, of both editions, is uh, these uh, boys flipping off a, a seawall in, in Madro and the Marshall Islands. And, and you can't see that. In other words, that, that you know, one of them is upside down as he's flipping. And, but it's, it's only a fast shutter speed that's freezing that. And that's, that's magical to me, that you can actually then dissect a moment like that. And so, you know, that doesn't mean I'm always you know, running around and shooting photos every time uh, somebody's jumping off something or flipping or doing fast movement. It could be, you know, subtle and just environmental portraits of, uh, like there was a, a shot I did that's in the book, you know, in the early 90s in Vietnam of a, of a, a little boy on the streets of Hanoi. Uh, but that's a frozen moment in time as well. You know, now you go, you go back to Hanoi now and that very, that, that scene of poverty back then has, has changed on the same street to, you know, modern hotels, uh, but but it but we have the ability to go back and see those moments. I mean, just if you think about it, so photography basically we're coming up on the 200th anniversary of the invention of photography mm-hmm. in the early 1820s. You know, with Joseph Nies. I mean, even though his colleague is often given credit, you know, uh, the daguerreotype. You know, in 18 1839 is sort of officially the often the start of official start date for photography, but it really dates back into the 1820s. So if you think about mm-hmm. it, we've only had the ability for the last 200 years to document with a camera life. And 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 obviously back then it, the exposures were ours. It's, it's much more recent that we could really freeze a moment in time. And, and so mm-hmm. we're in a very unique position. But unfortunately, you know, all too often uh, those moments of time are, you know, documenting uh, wars and and disasters and things like that. I, I do hope in my photos that we're seeing, you know, humanity, you know, living out their daily lives as best as they can. And I, I think that's 
portrayed even in my books, like on Iran, North Korea. It's, it, they're more focused on daily life in places that are off the beaten path. Because, you know, even though maybe, you know, conflict is more sexy in a certain way and important to, you know, sexy meaning not sexy in a good way, obviously, but in terms of, you know, it's mm-hmm. more people tend to be attracted to those those type of upheavals. Uh, I, I think it, it's, it's um, you know, very, very, very important to document the reality of daily life for most of us. Uh, and this is obviously a, a very unique time. I think we're all trying to put our... You know, wrap our heads around what's going on here. I mean, nobody, unless you're 110 years old, you haven't lived through something like this, you know, on a global scale, right? I mean, it's been, you know, more than 100 years since the last uh, global pandemic. And uh, so so that's, so yeah, definitely, I'm I'm sure just like in the audience, we're, we're, we're chatting with, you know, now we're all wrapping our heads around this. And, um, you know, hopefully, you know, just like everything else eventually passes, but, you know, how much, you know, devastation it will leave along the way is still yet to be determined. Right. Like how long do we need a distance in order to make a, a big cultural change? And yeah. I think a lot of us sitting here, at least for me, I, I feel like that's about to happen. I mean, there's going to be permanent or long-term effects from this already. You know, the longer we, we go, hopefully some creatives and musicians and photographers and filmmakers are using this as a time to, you know, if not create, maybe look back on what they've created. I've, I've found that to be valuable too. Oh, 100%. I, I agree completely. This is a fantastic time to really, you know, sort of take stock of, 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 on an individual basis of, of where we are and then start thinking about where we want to go. I mean, I've definitely thought about that too. You know, I've been doing this freelance thing for so many years and, and love it, but it does take a, a, a toll in certain ways because, you know, you're not always around for uh, family events and, and other things. Um, you know, I'm not ready to, to give up the road at all, but I might make some adjustments in terms of, you know, being more selective in terms of where I want to go at what I want to do rather than sort of just jumping on a plane every other week. I mean, obviously there's going to be the social distancing thing. I, you know, maybe handshaking is gone for good and maybe it's good that it's gone. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, right. I, I mean, maybe, things, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you know, in, in Japan, the handshaking has become sort of a modern thing, but you know, the idea mm-hmm. of, of, of sort of just, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really particularly embracing this elbow bump thing, but, but maybe a bit of a, you know, a head nod, you know, might not be a bad idea instead, you know, shaking hands, uh, regardless of this, you know, when people have colds, I mean, how many times have you shaken somebody's hand and just afterwards they say, Oh, I'm just getting, you know, and then you ask, how are you when you're shaking a hand and they say, Oh, I'm just yeah. getting over a cold. And, and as a um, germaphobe, which I definitely am in that category to some degree, I certainly don't enjoy, you know, hearing that. And it really is true, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. we, we have to be aware that we can pass things on other than, you know, just the current crisis. But yeah, so so you're right. So maybe we do have to really be more aware of our interactions. I mean, I hope we don't end up in just a sterile, you know, climate, you know, where we're all just, you know, like having the, like like two magnets that, that can't mm-hmm. approach each other. You're automatically repelled away. But I, I do think we have to be aware. And also, you know, just like, I mean, something I've always done, as, as I said, as a self-proclaimed uh, minor germaphobe, is I always like push elevator door buttons or elevator buttons with my knuckle. I never use my finger uh, at all. Mm-hmm. You know, you, then you touch your face without knowing it, and then you can contract things. I mean, it's, it's definitely, we're seeing it now. I mean, the way this thing has has gone global and all the people that's impacting is is beyond belief i mean it started supposedly you know in wuhan in a market and uh now it's affected people around the world and will continue i mean that is just unbelievable it's unfathomable but it's it's the reality maybe we could use um you know for handshakes to solidify a deal or like a life-changing circumstance and everything else is a head nod or a a fist bump. Well said. I, I think that's that's a, a great idea. Or, or we could just skip the, the, sh- the handshake all together and a really important thing, we do a hug still, you know, but just do yeah. away with it with a handshake, you know. Go right into hugs. Go right into hugs. A hug or forget it, you know, one or the other. <laughs> either, either it rises to the level of a hug or we'll stick to just, you know, a bow. Pats on mm-hmm. the back, maybe we can, we can, we can keep those. 
But of course, you have to be careful about that too, right? Yeah. An unsolicited pat on the back can be an issue as well. You know, so who knows? But yeah, I, I agree completely that I think we have to make uh, adjustments. And, and one of the interesting things, of course, about traveling as much as I have, and hopefully we'll, we'll you know, hopefully be doing more of in the near future, is seeing all the cultural differences. I mean, you know, in Japan, since I do work there so much, you know, the idea of what you do in, you know, France or Italy of two or three kisses, you know, when you greet people, it's just unheard of, you know, in, in mm-hmm. Japan you know, or, or China as, as well, or Korea. So, so, you know, a lot of things are cultural and we'll see how those things change, but everything evolves just like language evolves. You know, we don't speak in Shakespearean English anymore, or at least most of mm-hmm. us don't, you know, things evolve and uh, greetings will as well. I mean, very few of us do the Roman, you know, clasping of, of uh, forearms uh, when we meet each other. And I doubt we'll be going back to that. So, uh, we'll see. But I, I do, you know, one of the books I did called The Travel Photo Essay, Describing a Journey Through Images, tends to be focused on journeys internationally or other parts of our own regions. But it really could be applied to our local places because, you know, everywhere we are is a destination to somebody. And so I think as we start to come out of this, and people can get on the streets, you know, they can document things, but also you could document it. And I do see a lot of contests now online, document how you're local, how, how you're adjusting to this. You know, you can do an environmental self-portrait of yourself in your present space. How are you handling this? I mean, I think there's a lot of creative you know, ways to, you know, in addition, obviously, to going through our own archives, you know, stories, you know, thinking, okay, what can I, organizing, that's a fantastic thing to do now, you know, maybe, uh, you know, going through organizing things, but 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 for, you know, getting out and shooting things locally, I think will probably be the first step in the recovery, you know, before we start boarding planes. And so, you know, telling stories uh, in our own neighborhood, you know, might be that first step, you know, back out, you know, toward normalcy. Uh, and, and so actually, I, I just became uh, for Light in Motion, you know, which specializes in constant light sources. Uh, I, I just became an ambassador for them. And so I've been using the lights. I've been trying to, you know, before I want to pontificate about, you know, how to use the lights, I want to get better at them myself. And so I have been using uh, the time to set up so, some portraits, you know, just self portraits to practice with the lighting uh, and also shooting some still lights so I can get this you know, the lighting system down. So uh, there, there's so much we can do, you know, without opening the door uh, and venturing outside. Uh, I, I think I'm using the time, you know, pretty well. And I think just people listening to this uh, podcast, that's using time, hopefully, you know, in a good way. I'm definitely listening to a lot more podcasts and getting involved in, in webinars. And, and, and look how fortunate we are. How many years ago did, did this whole thing start up? We, we could not have uh, mm-hmm. interfaced like this, what, what, two decades ago, maybe less than that, where this is common. Now. Just imagine if this whole thing happened, you know, in the 1980s, we wouldn't have that opportunity to interface. But yet we still, air travel was just as it was going on then. And so we, we still would have the global spread of, of the, uh, you know, COVID-19, but we wouldn't have the ability to interface. Now we do, you know, we're, we're fortunate in that. And what was interesting about how you started your career, you really started it going international and, and documenting and, and through that process, did you know you wanted to produce books or what, I guess, what was the original intent to go overseas, to go all the, to all these countries and, and start documenting? That's a great question. Well, I mean, I've always had a, a wanderlust, even as a, as a kid, uh, we would do with my parents, we would do driving trips all around the country. And my dad, uh, who did PR for radio stations, uh, and, and TV, uh, always had a camera with them, you know, an eight millimeter and a, uh, a film camera, uh, movie camera, and a 35 millimeter camera, like a, uh, I think Konica was the first one I remember. But but I just loved documenting those trips, you know, with, with my dad. And I mean, it was my, my mother and my brother with us, but basically I was the assistant cameraman. And, you know, even at six, seven years old, and I, I just loved it. And so uh, I think my wonderlust grew out of that. And then when I was high school years and got a driver's license, started venturing out with friends. And then uh, as soon as I could, saved up enough money and uh, went over to Europe and backpacked around. And so it's been an evolution. I mean, the first regular gig I had, maybe 
first professional gigs were with the Merv Griffin show back uh, in the mid 80s uh, for three and a half years until the show ended. And that really gave me a sort of a firm base of how the TV industry worked. And then I started shooting some stills and films. But my love of travel was still there. And so when the show ended, I took off for four and a half months and then just, you know, island top through the South Pacific and then through China. And that was that was a very purposeful trip to build up a portfolio of what I wanted to do. And then when I came back, I felt that I still mm-hmm. was missing, even though it was, and my bachelor's and master's are in history. And so actually my master's is in a special major combining photography and history, documentary sort of work. But I realized that I still was missing, you know, the, the ability to work with strobes. I hadn't really learned that in school. And so I started renting lights on my own on weekends. Uh, and then I assisted for a while, including a pretty long-term assisting gig with Playboy. And so regardless of the subject matter, uh, you know, those photographers really are amazing at lighting and understanding Kelvin temperatures and everything else, because things were really captured in camera. I mean, it's amazing when you look at like, you know, a centerfold, which used to be shot with an 8x10 camera, and you look at the detail uh, and the lighting, the sophistication of that. It, it was not relying on on retouching later. People always like mm-hmm. to say that. It's like, oh, those photos are so heavily retouched. But if you saw the original you know, negatives or, or positives from those days, you would see mm-hmm. just how incredible the lighting is. And so I learned a lot from that, which I then later applied uh, in my own work. And a sensitivity to this day, and when I teach workshops, I really do try to emphasize Kelvin temperatures and the importance of that, you know, because if you go in and you light, you know, a person and, you know, it's one Kelvin temperature, but the ambient light around them in the distance is another Kelvin temperature. It looks very artificial. Uh, when I use mm-hmm. artificial lighting, it's to to bring the most out of the subject or the situation. I don't want a big color imbalance, and I don't want to have to go back in later and make corrections. I mean, in terms of, you know, I'm old school in that. Let's try to get it right in camera as much as mm-hmm. as possible. But I would say in the workshops these days, I teach one of the biggest things I see that's missing is are people's understanding of Kelvin temperatures and and. You know, maybe it doesn't sound super cool. It's like, wow, okay, yeah, I know all the Kelvin temperatures, but uh, it's very important. And and so people who want to be professionals, and, you know, and since out, you know, our audience today is you know a lot of DPs, and you know, obviously they know that inside and out. But to students, I, I would I would say it would behoove them to know the, their Kelvin temperatures, and obviously the you know the more regular things like f stops and all that, you know, mm-hmm. to say the least. And I, and I, and it really is true that the digital cameras have taken over and done so much that you could almost set it on program and shoot, but but you won't get the results that you will if you do understand Kelvin temperatures and F-stops and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I like hearing uh, you talk about Kelvin temperatures and, and that because mm-hmm. not a lot of photographers, I mean, they may already start with LED or have, have done um, prior lighting, but to me, that seems to be one of the reasons why the subjects that you shoot look so natural. Like you've you've been able to to blend in the temperature side of things with the lighting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a shot that's on the cover of my second book on North Korea, which is just called North Korea, and that was with I used a Nikon, and I did an off-camera flash because I had no real control of when I would show up uh, in North Korea to different places to shoot. In fact, that particular shot, I sort of went off on my own and shot, which you're not supposed to do, but I was <laughs> I was able to to do it, this traffic officer, but it was in the middle of the day, which meant very harsh shadows on her face. And so by having a handheld flash off to the left, I was able to get the shot and I had a quarter CTO on it, color temperature orange, in order to you know warm it up to balance out the ambient light situation. And so it does look natural. I don't think people looking at that say, oh, he used to flash. And that's a good thing. I don't want things right. to scream flash at all. I mean, there are situations where there's no choice. There, there's a photo I did of a uh, a father or a grandfather holding up his grandkid on a beach at sunset uh, in Iran, on the island of Kish in Iran. And so the sun is setting behind them. And we don't live in a binary system. So, so there's not another sun to illuminate them in the in the foreground. And so I needed to bring my own sun in a sense, and that's a flash. And I had a full CTO on that in order to do it. And this is happening very fast. And so so if you do know this stuff, you can quickly adjust. And so I just put on a, you know, I just brought it from 5,600 to 3,200 in, in a second, I took the shot. It was just a fleeting moment. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. You know, so, you know, as Cardi 
Prasant said, you know, you want to capture the decisive moment. You don't want to get an indecisive moment a second afterwards. And mm-hmm. um, and that's something maybe I, I, I also should should mention that I'm extremely fortunate. I mean, my teachers, in a sense, have been all, all these amazing 20th century and 21st century photographers that I've interviewed for photo magazines and for books over the years. And so I did have the you know, the honor to spend a decent amount of time with Cartier-Bresson, but also people like Alfred Eisenstadt, Helmut Newton, Annie Leibowitz, Mary Ellen Mark, you know, just, uh, just, just all these amazing people. And I've picked up something from each one of them, hopefully. Uh, just, and of course, that sort of ties into my, you know, interest of history as well, because, you know, these are the people that documented, you know, history in the 20th century, and, and most of them are, are gone now. But through their photos and and words you know we have a better picture literally of of what life was like you know in the 20th century Mm -hmm. you spent a lot of time in southeast asia and the pacific and uh what drew you to borneo and and to spend time there documenting great great question i appreciate that came about in a very strange way i was shooting something in indianapolis of all places and uh, they have a, a international orangutan center there and uh, it was part of a general travel story, but they were just opening this international orangutan center. And I did some photos using an off-camera flash through double plexi, or I don't know if it was doubled, but some sort of glass where it was almost impossible to get a, a clean shot. But by lighting them and knocking down the ambient light, I was able to get some very interesting portraits of the orangutans. And people seemed to really react to those images. And so I, I set up a separate trip just to go back and photograph that. And then that expanded to photographing at other places where orangutans were in captivity, uh, which then through those images winning some contests, I was uh, contacted by uh, a, a survival foundation in Borneo to see if I would be interested in doing a pro bono and getting out and photographing what was going on there. And obviously I jumped mm. at the mm-hmm. chance to do that. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, did that on the Indonesian side of Borneo. Borneo is an amazing place, first of all, because it's divided into three countries. One is Brunei, which is having a sort of a, I mean, people who look up Brunei, there's some real issues going on there in terms of their acceptance of all sorts of people. But that aside, Kalimantan is the Indonesian side, and then Malaysia has a, a large section. And so I went back a second time. First time was to the Indonesian side, a second time was the Bornean side with a side trip to Brunei. And I've been, you know, focused on the wildlife there because to, to do this whole orangutan series, I felt, okay, there's only two places on the planet where they're in the wild and they're in extreme danger. And that's Borneo and Sumatra. If we lose them there in the wild, that's the end of the line for them. We'll, we'll only have some in captivity. Uh, because what's happening is because of palm oil, uh, all these plantations are going up and it's destroying the native habitat. And as, as, a, as, as somebody said, that making a, an orangutan live on the ground is like making a St. Bernard live up in a tree. It just doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? And so the motivation there is to bring awareness to, uh, as other people are trying to do, obviously, uh, of the extreme issues facing the orangutans. And so I do see that as a book uh, in the next year or two. Now that I have, you know, the stronger base of images from Borneo to combine with the portraits and the backstories of the orangutans here, I do think it's a very important story. And it's a one-way ticket for them. If if they do disappear from the wild, that that's it. I mean, you could try to, you know, reforest and put some back out there, but it's not the original indigenous species. And, and there is a danger. I mean, you get down to a certain number that can't procreate uh, a healthy lineage, and that's the end of that you know we're losing species all the time and Mm -hmm. uh, they could be the first great apes to get on that list and so hopefully that won't happen were you brought up to the canopies or i I guess describe um the nature of orangutans are they are they living high up where you're going up there what what sort of circumstance did you get into well, that's an excellent question. They're, they're arboreals, right? So they, they do live up in the trees. A lot of the times I am shooting up, but they do come down. And so uh, I'm doing a combination. I mean, there are plenty of opportunities to shoot them in lower hanging you know, tree limbs. And so I took advantage of that. I didn't hide out in any hides or anything like that. It was more just trekking through the areas. But, you know, it's interesting and a little bit scary. I, on the second trip, the 
Well, actually, it, it happened in Indonesian side as well. There's lots of snakes there and really dangerous mm-hmm. ones. And so while you're looking up, you have to look down. Uh, and there was a huge cobra just crossing our path just as we were hiking. And, and this was in the muddy season and we're, we're slogging along. And so while we're looking up, it's like, oh, my God, you got to look down, too. And mm. I have never seen a snake that big in the wild. And then we got back to the place we were staying and there was a huge python uh, in the kitchen. So it's like, oh, uh, this is <laughs> get away real. <laughs> this, is, this is for real. But it is their territory. You know, I'm a visitor in right. their territory. You're, you're but, the visitor. Yeah. I'm the visitor, but still, it's, that's, that's, this is real, you know. And so, yeah. but there was also a lot of other wildlife in those areas to, to shoot as well. And so a lot of the exploration was done, especially in the Bornean side, through rivers and then photographing from, you know, a little outrigger or I don't know, I'm not much of a boatsman, but from a small boat. And, and so that there was a lot of the time up in the uh, what's called uh, Saba side. And then in Indonesia, we, we did some exploration by boat as well, but a lot of that was trekking. We're actually both sides, a lot, a lot of trekking, but really uh, fascinating to see them in the wild. And also then to also document the work being done by the these survival foundations. And, you know, hopefully, you know, what I'm doing will call attention to the great work and the very necessary work they're doing. But yeah, it's not easy capturing photos of uh, orangutans in the wild, for sure. But I, I think as with anything else, uh, you put enough time in, things start to unfold. Uh, and just like when I teach workshops, that's something I often do. Uh, I'm saying, what are the odds of something happening just when you happen to show up there? It's better to shoot less and then just hang out in one area. And, mm-hmm. and uh, things then tend to unfold. Just like I think when Cartier Bresson did that famous photo of somebody jumping over a puddle in front of a train station in Paris, he saw the puddle and I have a feeling he just hung out. I should have asked him. Now it's too late. But you know, he probably just hung out there knowing that eventually somebody would have to get from one side to the other of a puddle. And that's the same sort of thing. You can see things unfold. And so if you hang out, you know, what you want to avoid is saying, oh, this shot would have been good if, you know, it's much better to just hang out and wait for that if to happen. And and often it does. That's, that's the amazing Mm -hmm. thing about documentary work, whether you're doing still or, or, or film or video is you, is you can see how things might unfold. And so what happens if it doesn't? So you, you hung out for a certain amount of time and observed, you know, life and then you moved on. But often it, it really does unfold in spectacular ways. So that's something that I, I definitely stress in, in workshops and, and in the stories I write about photography is wait for that extra element or that extra moment. You know, don't get into the habit of saying this would have been good if, you know, wait for the if. Mm-hmm. So like on one hand, you're telling photographers that maybe have only done digital mm-hmm. um, a little bit about what the film or, you know, that the, I should say, I guess the classic photographers know is, mm-hmm. you know, when you had film and you're going across Japan, you only had a set amount. That's right. And so part of that is then you had to develop that patience. You had to, to develop that staying power. And is that what you're extracting from being a film photographer to digital? It's it's. That, that's definitely true. I remember one of the people that I, I had the opportunity to interview was, was Helmut Newton. And he told a story where he was shooting for Vogue and he shot eight frames and then said uh, to the fashion director, uh, Grace Coddington, said, um, okay, let's go to the next dress. And she said, uh, Helmut, you only shot eight frames. And he said, well, you only need one. And so that's, that, that, that's great. And he said, you know, he doesn't have the, he didn't have the patience or interest in going through, you know, endless contact sheets. And he saw that as, as a sign of insecurity, you know, to, mm-hmm. to have to shoot. And there's a, another French photographer, Willie Ronas, who said, you have to earn the photo. He doesn't want to be a metrayette. He doesn't want to be a machine gunner and da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. I said, that's the best way to miss a photo. And so I do think that old school approach is something that I did because as, as you said, like I remember like that first trip to Vietnam in the early nineties, I had maybe 40, 50 rolls of film for an extended trip in lead bags. And that was it. And I'm not sure if I, maybe I came back with a few rolls of unprocessed film as well, you know, because of course, you know, you can carry, you can only carry so much, but also, you know, in those days, you know, now, you know, money, uh, of course, always counts. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons to not just bang, bang, bang all the time mindlessly. 
but but getting into a wet dark room and processing and you're feeling the f-stops i think that's something that really was extremely helpful so i would encourage i know there's a retro move now to shoot film again but i think it would be a good idea to take it the full distance not just shooting some film and then handing it over to a lab for processing and then mm-hmm. you know telling them which image you want printed, I think that's sort of defeating the purpose in a way, because Mm -hmm. digital, the cameras are just so impressive these days. You know, if you're not going to actually make a print yourself, then I think you're defeating part of the process. When you put a negative into a negative carrier and you, you project it down onto a piece of paper, and then you're turning in the you know, under a red light, if it's black and white, you're turning the f-stops, you're feeling it. You know, you're going 16, 11, 8, mm-hmm. 5, 6, mm-hmm. 4, 2, 8, and half stops in, in between. You really are feeling it. And also when you're examining your images that carefully, and you're saying, wow, this image is really flat, or this is really contrasty, you know, because your exposure wasn't right on, and it's a pain to print, you're saying, wow, okay, I really need to watch this. I, I don't want to you know, lose these highlights or, 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 you know, I'm trying to dig out, you know, the shadows, you know, it's just too muddy. And so Mm -hmm. I think you really learn exposure that way. And it was a fascination about, you know, like the the cover of, you know, Wonderlust, which you had mentioned, you know, I didn't know I had that image until three weeks later when I got back to LA and, and processed the film. So, you know, that has a certain exciting element to it too. But, but I, I I think digital's, you know, fantastic. I've fully embraced it. I, I was slow, to embrace it. And the only time that I finally sort of gave myself over to it was 2006 when I was going to North Korea. And I thought I could get under the radar a lot more in work if I didn't show up with 50 rolls of film, you know, and so yeah. digital cards. And also, I, I also felt at that time, and I was mostly a black and white shooter until then, but I, I felt also that if I was going to try to tell the story as best as I could of what I saw in North Korea, I should do that in color. And so that was definitely a career turning point from black and white to color and for film to digital. That was really a a major turning point. And I really haven't looked back at that point. And I could really Mm -hmm. see when I would look at images made in film and images made digitally that by 2006, in 35 millimeter at least, the digital captures were stronger. I mean, in terms of less Mm -hmm. grain, and all that. And so, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I would say definitely my film past gave me a very strong base below to build from. And, and people still can do that. And even if, if you never shoot a roll of film in your life, I think if you put the time in to really study the technical aspects of digital, you can get to the same place. Yeah. 2006 seemed to be that crossover where it wasn't as grainy and mm-hmm. sort of weighed to make more of a digital investment. I think so. I, th- that for me, but I mean, there were a lot of people that made the move earlier. And so I, I am not a, a trendsetter, uh, I would say, when it comes to, uh, you know, a- equipment at all. I- I'm usually a generation or two, in, in terms of generation of cameras or this or that, you know, to to embrace them, just like I'm still shooting a DSLR rather than a mirrorless, though I do carry one mirrorless camera with me when I'm just going out for a quick drive. I always want to have a camera with me. But probably, you know, we're moving now with Nikons, you know, to the second generation of their high-end digital cameras. And so maybe, I mean, I, I would think within 10 years, DSLRs will pretty much be off the market, that we really don't need the whole mirror system anymore to look through a lens, right? So that's just mm-hmm. part of the evolution. And maybe that's a good thing. It will save my back. And in 10 years from now, I probably will really need that. So... We'll see. You know. Do you find patterns when you enter into a potentially dangerous situation or a place that has a, a dangerous stigma? Do you mm-hmm. find patterns from year one or day one through like in this case with North Korea, mm-hmm. year ten? How do you set yourself up to take in that sort of immersion? And what did you find when you started? What did you find when you ended in a place like North Korea? Well, North Korea has really evolved in an amazing way since I first went there in, like, in 2006. Now, because of, you know, a guy passed away soon after he was in captivity there, an American, and then when he came back, he came back in a coma and then, then died. And so since then, uh, the State Department has not allowed Americans to go. And so my, my trips there have been put on hold. I mean, there is a way to get a, around that through a special Mm -hmm. waiver, but I mean, I hope to get back there again soon. But basically, I mean, the key thing is wherever you are is try to play by the rules and and listen to your local 
handlers if you have one. Even even with that, there's dangers that that can happen. You know, we were you know a couple of years ago when I did a, a story on Kurdish Iraq, we then ventured out into Mosul and it was being bombed at that time. And so there's there's be dangers anywhere. But if you if you if you really put yourselves in the hands of the local handlers. And if you know that you can trust them and if they've been vetted by other people that you know, uh, that's a good way to go. I mean, things can happen anywhere. Uh, When I was doing the tsunami story, we were on the 16th floor of a hotel in Sendai and the biggest aftershock uh, hit. It was a 7-1 and went on forever. And it was I've been in earthquakes in, in LA before, but this was unbelievable. I've never experienced something so intense. And, and so you never know. I mean, you can, you can try right. to mitigate, you know, the dangers of a situation, but they don't disappear. But I would say just, you know, try, try, go by the rules. Don't, don't try to be sneaky. Uh, you know, I, I have not tried to, in North Korea, you know, shoot from the hip, because they're they're acutely aware of who's out there, who's who's doing what. I'm still trying to push it in terms of getting images, but I've been told, hey, you've got to erase that, you know, or we can't stop here. Like I'll see an image, you know, that I really want to get, and they're saying, oh no, no, we don't have time. We got to go to the next monument, you know, and it's very frustrating. But you know, if you build a, a trusting relationship with with whoever's taking you around, uh, they start relaxing the rules, and, and you usually can mm-hmm. eventually get what you want. And out of the 10 trips there and to traveling throughout the country, so obviously not just Pyongyang, but through most of the country, actually, you get a, I, I think I've been able to get a pretty real picture of what's going on there. And, and so I think that's, once again, the investment of, of time and to build up trust. But I don't think there is any perfect, you know, like, oh, you're going to be 100% safe if you go, you know, if you do this or that. You can mitigate some of the dangers, but you can't eliminate them. That's that's for sure. But street smarts definitely play a role in things. Yeah, I mean, actually in Iraq, something happened at a bazaar. I photographed something and somebody took offense to it and they came at me. But I had a security team and fortunately they intervened. I mean, they were on top of it and mm-hmm. that's fortunate. And that wasn't, you know, that was just at, at a bazaar, you know, just daily life thing. And that was after Mosul. So, so here we are in a really extreme area you know, this being bombed and that no problem there, but then, you know, for me there, but then all of a sudden we're at a bazaar and something potentially extremely dangerous happened. So you never know. Uh, when I was in Iran and Hamadin, uh, I was photographing on Friday at a mosque and I was photographing women that were sort of an overflow crowd from the mosque. And I was all of a sudden grabbed by the arm and, and pulled away. And it was a very intense discussion between my uh, translator and, and security there. And after a discussion, things got a little more relaxed and they handed me some candy and said, sorry, but please don't mm. photograph this. And so, so there you go. And so I, I didn't try to be defiant. I tried to be respectful. And I think that does get you, you know, a long way, you know, so. Mm-hmm. And, and probably with orangutans too. I, I don't know how long oh, you're documenting, boy. but I, I imagine yeah. that you, not that you've, you know, developed a relationship from afar, but you've probably seen patterns and like, how, how was that? I mean, was there communication was. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh, amazing. Well, in captivity, I actually photographed some and they gestured for me to turn a camera around so they could see themselves on Mm. the back of the camera. (laughs) And I know that sounds unbelievable, but, but for, for, for those in the audience who want to see the reality of this, if, if you look up the Indiana International Orangutan Center in Indianapolis and you look and you do some maybe keyword searches about a woman had some burns on her neck and the orangutan gestured for her to turn around and he kept sort of pointing, trying to understand what was going on with her and the bandages. It was mm-hmm. unbelievable. And and that was real. And that just shows this interaction. And so for, for me, yeah, definitely in a while, the potential for danger is real. If you get a, a, an adult male aggravated, that's a huge issue. And you never know exactly what's going to aggravate them. So, so obviously, so to go around with skilled people and when they say back off or stand over here or do this or that, mm-hmm. you've got to react immediately to what they're saying. People have been extremely injured, even though orangutans, for the most part, are, are not aggressive, there are definitely exceptions and you definitely don't want to be one of, involved in one of those exceptions. And so I, I do try to listen to the local people who know what they're doing. But yeah, there are definitely with wildlife. I mean, there's, I think Beverly Jobert's a great wildlife photographer in Africa was impaled on a rhino's horn 
I believe. Mm. Was it a rhino? I, I think it, it might. No, it might be a water buffalo. But it, it was in Africa. And she's an expert on them. I mean, she knows their behavior. But things can happen. You just don't know. And so you just have to, to be heads up. And I know we all want that great photo. But, you know, there's times to, you know, to uh, get the camera away from your, your eye and run or hide or whatever, you know, you're supposed to do in that particular situation. But hopefully you won't get into that situation too often. But you do have to be aware uh, when you're shooting more, you know, documentary sort of things, that's for sure. Hey, Mark, for folks who want to learn more about you and, and see your work, I guess, where can they find you? And, and maybe even what are one or two books to start with to uh, to look at? Great. Well, uh, Instagram, and I'm a very latecomer to Instagram, and I was hiding in part because of all the work of, I was doing in North Korea and Iran. But at Mark Edward Harris photo is my Instagram, and that has a link also to my website, which is markedwardharris.com. Well, a couple of, of books, definitely on the top of the list, you know, I, I guess like with kids, you're not supposed to have favorites, but I've, I've got to say uh, The Way the Japanese Bath is on the top of the list for me. And North Korea, not Inside North Korea, that was my first book, but a much more developed book on North Korea from, from eight of the 10 trips is just called North Korea. That's by Shashin Press. If, if people want a how-to book at all, my book, The Travel Photo Essay by Focal Press, I would recommend. And so, yeah, and people can always feel free to, to shoot me an email via my website or Instagram. I also list my workshops on, on my website, which unfortunately are for the most part on hold. We have something coming up in Bhutan at the end of September, early October, which I hope by then we will be past this and uh, hopefully we'll have a lot more on them next year. We're planning to do a lot of my floating photo workshops, which I love doing. Uh, in Europe. That's always a lot of fun. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so people can look on my website under workshops for that. Great. Hey, thank you for being on the show today, Mark. Really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. Jordan, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Roll Call podcast brought to you by We The Project. If you are interested in becoming a part of the We The Project community, you can head over to wetheproject.com and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you to Whiteheart Grove Productions, a partner in post-production for the Roll Call podcast. Produced by Petros Media.